Hi, everybody. It's Gene Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations in a delightful rainstorm. Boy, did we need this. I'm very, very happy to have all those green things popping up around us in the garden. What a wonderful sight. And uh, it's November, and it, you know, it always rains in November. Thank goodness it is raining, because otherwise we'd be saying, whatever happened to the rain, like the rest of the things that we're worried about, whatever happened to them. I have two extremely interesting people with me uh, today, and I actually didn't know how interesting they were, to be quite frank. I mean, their names that you've heard, Gianna Shasher, did I pronounce that right? Sachery. Sa- so you're yep. Sachery. Mm-hmm. I've heard it both ways. And um, Randy Fertel. Now, these folks... Um, first of all, Jan is a producer, and she is the producer of something called Improv New Orleans, a festival of ideas. And uh, and Randy is um, he's a very interesting character. I didn't know about this accent on character. Well, I didn't know about all this um, these academic credentials. I mean, he's he's got some serious stuff back there, and he's written a book called A Taste for Chaos: The Art of Literary Improvisation. And this festival that they're about to have. And I, I really want you guys to tune into it. It kind of has a little prelude, so to speak, on um, this weekend, but then it really kicks into high gear next weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about improvisation in its many forms. So whether it's um, the kind that we generally think of in terms of music, um, it's also literary, which I'm not surprised that. I mean, I, I can see that easily, but it, it's something you don't think about every day. And then even um, when you think about culinary issues and urban planning and identity is one I really want to hear about. And um, um, comics, they've got this – I grew up with Jules Fiver. I mean, he was mm. part of my growing up. Yeah. I guess he must have been in The Village Voice, mm-hmm. which I read on a regular basis. And my favorites were always the dancers because I was yeah. a dancer. Right. And they were always these kind of beatnik girls who were just floating through life but yeah. Yeah. facing the challenges that he would kind of minimize by saying, okay, it's terrible, but everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And that was that was what I – my takeaway from Jules Pfeiffer, mm. who is going to be here for this – this conference and 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 it's such an interesting mix of things. So and Michael Pollan, yes, Michael Pollan. and and we're gonna we're gonna go through the whole. Mm-hmm. I want you to highlight all the interesting people because there's, there's quite a few. In addition, of course, to musicians and um, other folks, some filmmakers, etc. But we're gonna take the whole hour with these people because. There's a lot going on in this conference, and um, it, it's, it's going to take us a while to cover it all. But let me start with Randy, because he, he wrote an introduction that he shared with me that was very interesting, and um, I want him to kind of encapsulate it a little bit. I mean, it's a, it's a few pages, so you can't do the whole thing, of course, sure. but I'm very interested in the underlying concept that you have laid out here. Well, my field is literature. I have a PhD in English, but... As I studied improvisation in graduate school, looking at literary improvisation, I realized that it really touches all the arts, that the the essence of what I was seeing in literature was true in, in other arts. So um, we are looking at improvisation across the arts or across the disciplines. So we start this weekend. Well, you, you wanted the introduction. So, well, you know, it's not... It's not totally PC to find the an essence 
of anything, right? It's not, we're not allowed to see similarity. We, we want to see difference. Um, but I, I see an essential similarity in things that are improvised. And what I see is that improv is always a pushback against the mainstream. And the mainstream is characterized essentially by a commitment to rationality. I mean, we, we've bought into the scientific um, point of view. Uh, if you if you look at the great arc of Western I, I, culture, let's say let's uh, define we because you you'd really um, have to say we in Western culture. We in Western culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I bracket the East in my book in Africa. Um, I think the same things are going on, um, but you know I was taking on. Homer to the present. I had to limit it somehow. <laughs> so I, I left out the East and I left out Africa. Though African legacies are all shot through the, the history of um, modern improvisation, especially in New Orleans. Um, so what I find is that if you look at the great arc of Western culture from Aristotle, what you're seeing is a, a commitment a greater and greater commitment to objectivity, the scientific method. Uh, and all along the way, there are these improvisers who are pushing back or sticking their finger in the eye of the scientists and saying, yeah, but what about intuition? What about the muse's inspiration? What about accident, you know, the happy chance? And so in in art... In science, it's a commitment to objectivity and rationality. In the arts, it's a commitment to craft and virtuosity. That's what floats most boats. But the improviser says, yeah, but look at what I do without art. What if I just play? And that is always a way of saying, you know, rationality doesn't get the whole thing said it doesn't it, it can't it can't embrace all of life there are parts of life that reason can't see and you know neuroscience is now coming to to help the improvisers because the neuroscience is saying yeah that's right there's a lot going on that's not rational so um at the same time and we were talking about this a little bit just before we came into the studio um scientists are improvisers too, Mm -hmm. especially in the early phase of their work, right? Mm -hmm. When they are um, some, again, accidental vision, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Newton watching the apple fall, um, uh, Einstein uh, watching the two trains and the two passengers. Archimedes having his eureka moment in the bathtub. Way way back then, right? (laughs) So, um, I, I mean... And then from that, they start to build these relationships. And to me, creativity, mm-hmm. I always think of it as seeing the connections, mm-hmm. the relationships mm-hmm. between things and letting your it's mind all about connecting dots. kind yeah. of go to the next mm-hmm. stop, which is why I really think that a lot of people who are um, uh, typed as having, uh, you know, ADD – Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are just plain creative thinkers because mm-hmm. their mind mm-hmm. can't stop at the boundary. Mm-hmm. It keeps going past it. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of science, a lot of scientific breakthroughs come when the scientist 
isn't thinking hard. There, there's a, a physicist, I think, uh, that I quote in my book who says that a lot of breakthroughs come from the bed, the bath, or the bus. <laughs> so, you know, you've right. been working really hard. You've been using logic. You've been using all these rational tools and analysis. Um, and then you go to sleep. And you're... The, that part of your brain that's not rational works on that problem. Mm-hmm. Or it comes to you while you're riding on the bus or like Archimedes when you're in the bath. Um, I, I like to bring this down to earth and say, listen, uh, if I want to convince you of something, I want, I want us to sell widgets. Well, the normal way of arguing is to say, listen, I've done all the homework. You know, when I, when I went to my mother with an idea, she was a very analytic person, and I had to bring her the, the you know, uh, all the data on why we should sell steak this way. Yeah, I was going to say, as a side note, <laughs> Randy's mother is Ruth Fertel, who was the founder and uh, developer of uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, which um, definitely had some, I would say, both intuitive and rational elements to its growth. Uh, there, there was a, an intuitive part. She was a kind of accidental entrepreneur. She really didn't plan on building this empire. So there was that element. But um, so if I wanted to convince her of something, I better have my ducks in a row. And those ducks should um, be analytic. Um, but there's another way of persuading, and that is to say, listen, I had this great idea in the shower this morning. And that's another way yeah. of authenticating or, or, or getting authority. And the the um, the thing that I explore is how that works in art. So, um, one of the reasons I really wanted to uh, have you on you both on my show and talk about this and and explore it, and I, I hope that. I will be able to come and attend a lot of this, of your event. Um, it's because I think that there is a, just as there is a lack of understanding between two different ethnicities, races, um, um, uh, professions, and they tend to, and political parties, mm-hmm. I Tribes. really resent the um, the compar- the the tension between the, the those who are rational mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the bureaucrats who run things based on those rational um, practices and those who are creative and I'll give you a, a perfect example of an anecdotal moment that I can never forget. So I, I, I have one foot in one part of the world and one foot in the other. So I was meant to be a creative person, but for some reason I like to organize things. Mm-hmm. I, I think you and I probably have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Actually, we all do here at this table. So um, I get into politics, and I wind mm-hmm. up working for David Dinkins in New York mm-hmm. for, and for a woman who uh, was head of economic development. And then she had to go take over the housing authority because – the woman who was running it got in trouble. So I wind up doing PR. That mm-hmm. was my stock and trade for decades for the housing authority, which mm-hmm. was not quite 
really my thing. It's not sexy. So we had a retreat <laughs> one day, and we went around the room to sort of do that value thing. What was your chief value? And I said creativity, hmm. and everybody in the room laughed. Hmm. I was hmm. so P.O.'d. Mm-hmm. At that, because mm-hmm. it's, it really revealed that prejudice mm-hmm. against creative people. Right. You clearly, I have to assume, in doing this conference, are, first of all, celebrating improvisation, which you obviously respect and care about, but you are also, I assume, trying to break down that prejudice. So, so Ms. Shashari, yes. tell me why this is important to you and why you got involved in doing this conference and... Uh, I got involved with it because I grew up here, moved to New York for 20-something years. And when I got back home, I realized that so many events and community, um, uh, bringing community together was centered around things that really had no, um, pardon the pun, meat to them. They had nothing, uh, no ideas, nothing to really uh, explore your intellect. And... You know, coming from a place in New York where you could pick and choose at any random time something to engage in, it was a little disheartening to be back in New Orleans and realize that that was um, something that wasn't readily available. But to bring it down to another level, and I'm glad you you mentioned that binary. I think that we every our whole existence has been uh, reduced to this binary: black and white, Republicans, Democrats, creative, non-creative. When, in fact, we all have aspects of all of those things within us at all times. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I want to just explore this conference and explain to someone who doesn't think that they're creative or maybe this isn't something that they can gain any insight from is that it's we use improvisation every day. Uh, we, we were uh, Randy was on a radio show on WWOZ and Jonathan Fralick, who's a, a local composer, made the comment that. When you walk down the sidewalk here in New Orleans, when it's broken or uneven, you're improvising to mm-hmm. go up a step or move move around a puddle or move around a crack. Mm-hmm. You know, we use right. our brains to adjust to what's in front of us all the time, and that's an improvis- improvisation. Whether it's used then further for creativity is another aspect of it. But um, I think that people can gain a lot from just exploring their and being in a room with people who are thinking about the same things. And, and to have other people um, respect and honor their creative, the other person's creative yes. uh, mm-hmm. core and potential that they may not themselves respect because there's this pattern that's very characteristic that kids start out making art mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that at a certain point in their Someone development. Someone tells them they can't do it. They, they're told not to do it or mm-hmm. somehow the emphasis goes to other things and right. not that. And they lose that spontaneity that was involved in, in, in making art as a, as a child. And it's, it's a shame that we don't cultivate that more. I think they still have the spontaneity. What they lose is the confidence mm-hmm. or the um, permission to explore it. I mean, how many times are you at, see people doodling, you know, on their own or, you right. know, maybe – I don't know. Now with the with these phones, do people doodle anymore when they're in the airport or <laughs> oh, waiting in line? What an interesting question. I mean, I don't yeah. know where how where Well, those fancy $800 phones that allow you to doodle on them. Yes, I guess those folks are doing that, but again, it's it's um not everybody's 
opportunity. L- last um, year, our headliner was was Alice Waters, another great culinarian who built a kind of empire um, with just one restaurant, but seeded the world with her her people. Um, the people went through her kitchen, um, and she basically improvised that empire because she didn't start out to you know she just wanted to feed her friends, but it's she's a very creative person and it comes from well from her heart but she was before she was a restaurateur she was a Montessori teacher so uh-huh. she her commitment to creativity is mm-hmm. really deep mm-hmm. so let's 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 make sure that um you're going to be surprised how fast this is going to go so let's not um uh, neglect talking about this again very full program um, who wants to start? Uh, well, this Sunday we have kind of a springboard for the conference. We're screening a f- improvised film called Esplanade, which um, which was shot in the, cam- the um, which was edited in the camera. That is, there was no post right? post production. Yeah, no post production. It was all shot in the camera mm-hmm. uh, by. David Gamble, who's had a fantastic career in photography, uh, shooting famous rock and rollers since the 60s, um, with Jonathan Freilich doing the music. And it, it starts in Algiers point, at Algiers Point, and then travels along Esplanade, capturing Mardi Gras and, mm-hmm. and different things, and then ends, uh, at the end of it. And we're screening it at the end of Esplanade at right. NOMA, right. at the New Orleans Museum of Art. So mm-hmm. I, I love that little irony. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're screening that at three o'clock on Sunday, um, this Sunday, this Sunday, the right. third mm-hmm. at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's free. I was going to say, I think that, yeah. um, it's, it's, uh, part of, um, the, uh, um, program that allows people to come free on the weekends, um, if I'm not mistaken. Gianna Ad- probably knows more Admission about is free uh, for the film, but uh, I don't think you're not allowed to actually explore the museum. You're, you're, you're allowed to come in. We'll be there to gain entry into the, the screening, but the museum is still a, 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 Paid, a, cost, uh-huh. a, a cost for participants. Okay, but which you can do, of course, if yes, you want to. Yes, you absolutely yeah. can yeah. do. Okay, so that's this Sunday, but most of the action is next weekend, starts on Friday. So let's uh, look at our first um, item on the agenda is on um, Friday at 730. Yeah. 730 at Roussel Hall at Loyola. Okay, now. And that will be a panel discussion uh, between me. I, I'm moderating a conversation with Michael Pollan, the great food writer and now the man who's written the terrific book on psychedelics called uh, How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's been this resurgence of interest in psychedelics and how yeah. it's uh, used in treatments uh, for addiction and depression and end-of-life issues. And mm-hmm. uh, it's really a great read. I, re- I couldn't recommend it. More and then um, along with him, we'll have a New Orleanian, a terrific guy, Mark Plotkin, an ethnobotanist who's for decades been going to Suriname and in other countries in northeastern Amazon basin. Uh, to to um, as an ethnobotanist, he's looking for medicinal plants, 
and um, some of those plants were psychedelic. So he has a few things to say about psychedelics. So, so Randy, have you taken a psychedelic? Uh, I have, yeah. And I'm, how is I'm your old '60s guy? Um, you know, mixed. <laughs> I never had the guts. I, I um, really. What, no. he, what he's talking about is the the um, the loss of ego. That that you know that we have this thing that thinks it needs to be in control, mm-hmm. and that needs to filter everything. And uh, his experience, these heroic doses of psilocybin and other drugs, um, he finds uh, releases you from that. And the ego. Um, spends a lot of time in um, remembering things you did wrong or looking ahead to things that you're afraid are going to happen. So there's a lot of anxiety and and darkness that the ego brings to to our table. And um, in his experience, um, you can take a pill and experience a freedom from that. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's a really great read. Mark Plotkin's book is is uh, called um, Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice, and it's such a good read that I once was on a subway in New York and missed my stop by forty blocks. <laughs> um, so oh, that wasn't I, during I, rush hour. <laughs> I was on my way to Ginny's to hear jazz, to, to hear. Uh, uh, Pedrito Martinez. So, uh, but I was on time. So know, that's uh, that's our our conversation on Friday night, launching the the main part of the conference. Okay, so I, I want to hear from you, but I just want to mm-hmm. ask one question because I tend to avoid things at the universities because of parking issues. Yeah. So tell me where you parked when you're going to go to Russell Hall. Well, we, we don't have any dedicated parking. Um, it's just, you know, it's on the street on St. Charles. But I think on a Friday evening at 7.30, it might be, it might be okay. And, and Loyola has well, a parking well, lot parking over lots. on Ferret. Yeah. For, on Ferret, there's a parking lot. There is? Oh, yeah. we should. I, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. we should I get the maybe, word out. I think maybe most people will probably look it up and, and take a look and see where uh-huh. it is. But that's always an issue for me. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, you know, you just mentioned that you had you didn't have the guts, and I think it's interesting that Michael Pollan has said repeatedly in interviews around this book that he hadn't had the guts either, mm-hmm. and that he grew up at a time when, you know, if you took uh, mushrooms or any kind of psychedelics, the, the idea was that you were going to jump out the window or something, just go go mad. And so he had a lot of that anxiety before he even tried um, psilocybin, which is an organic material. I mean, I think that's kind of the... The difference, too, is that you're dealing with organic material that's not synthesized. Um, so it, it actually is a little sa- – it's safer, and um, you don't tend to freak out because <laughs> it's organic matter. I had a than- teacher – I went to um, I went to an unusual – I went to Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Hmm. And wow. There's a lot of history as to why I did that, but um, I had a teacher from – Harvard, who was part of that whole Timothy mm-hmm. Leary mm-hmm. crowd, mm-hmm. and he had been involved in all that. And um, he uh, did – we had some very, very interesting experiences in his class mm-hmm. without uh, any any drugs. But um, uh, And he tried to persuade a number of us to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. I, st- I still just um, – 
I think what you said about ego and wanting to be in control, that's definitely a factor in my and mm-hmm. how I function. Mm-hmm. Saturday, you have... Um, well, Saturday is, is really the, the again, using me to the conference. And I should say um, it's free all day. Saturday, we have four sessions at the Jazz Museum on Esplanade Avenue. That's easier to um, park. There's a parking lot right off at Elysian Fields. Yeah. Yes. That's, so yes. Several. Mm-hmm. Several. Um, and it starts um, with something that I think is going to be really interesting, uh, particularly to, to people in New Orleans, is in exploring improvisation and identity race beyond fixed categories. So, of course, going back to that binary of white and black, if mm-hmm. in New Orleans you have uh, different compositions of people. and um, we Endless. Can't, endless. Endless. <laughs> endless, right? And so it's kind of interesting to hear, this is actually four women talking about their experience. One is Bliss Broyard, whose father, Anatole Broyard, wrote Kafka Was All the Rage, and actually moved to New York in the teens to pass his white, um, and then on his deathbed announced to his family, his children, that uh, they weren't who who they who they thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that Henry Louis Gates, now the um, you know the father of the genealogy, mm-hmm. know your ancestry, mm-hmm. actually outed um, Anatole Broyard before. Bliss or anybody in her family could actually express or and and basically condemned him for yes. for turning his back on his race exactly so, you know yes. who else has we think mixed it's a race lot more complicated a lot yes, of, absolutely uh, uh, who else has a uh, mixed race that a lot of people don't know um, Edgar Degas hmm. yes yeah you know that mm-hmm. right. So, um, and the irony of it, of course, is that while he was here, his family was involved in some of the white citizen mm. uh, movement, and, and, and he dabbled in it, too, I think, mm. um, probably more wow. in response a, to... That was the 70s, right? That's, that's when it was really I mean, uh, Carol Channing, Clark Gable, Joseph Cotton. Wait, wait. Do that again? Yeah. <laughs> Carol Channing, mm-hmm. Clark Gable, Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton, I can see, totally. Um, the other two. I mean, the, there's a long list. I mean, you know, Bliss wrote a book called One Drop, and mm. I don't know when that law went off the books, but when it was on the books, it was if you had one yeah. 164th yeah. Negro blood, you were considered Negro. Mm-hmm. And all of this is about access. I mean, I, I think one of the things that Henry Louis Gates gets wrong is that People at that time were dealing with survival and issues mm-hmm. of education, housing, food. I mean, it's it's very basic. So you can't really judge judge them for make judge judge them according to uh, the way people act and behave now. Well, I like that you're you're looking at this the mix and um, again breaking down the boundaries. Food ways and resilience, improvising after disaster. So, you know, after Katrina, um, suddenly we were faced with um, shrimpers who had no boats, fishermen who had no boats, and farmers who didn't know if they uh, had a place to sell their wares. And so um, we, we have Brett Anderson moderating a panel made up of uh, Donna Cavado, 
who was the first leader of the edible schoolyard. Mm-hmm. One of the responses to Katrina, I actually was the one who uh, met Alice Waters at a nation dinner right after Katrina. And she told this great story about how Chef Paul Prudhomme saved her career in the 70s and how she wanted to do something for New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I support a school with a garden. How about we bring your edible schoolyard? So within six months, we had it started. And Donna was the first just terrific leader of the edible schoolyard, which now has blossomed into is it six schools? It's at least five. I'm it's sure a movement. About. It's, it's a not movement. a school anymore. And, it's a and, movement. And mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, part of a national movement. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we are Alice's um, most successful satellite. So we have mm-hmm. Donna. We have uh, Sandy Nguyen, who is the Vietnamese uh, immigrant woman who's, uh, who basically put together the economy of shrimping and fishing. Uh, for her community, so that they they would have a, really? a place to sell their wares. So she was really yeah. Yeah, a person she, who facilitated the Vietnamese who came to New Orleans, coming out of the uh, well. They war. were already here before Katrina. They were already here. But but they, no, no, no. But I, I'm after, talking about yeah. coming out of the Vietnamese War. Yeah. They mm-hmm. came here, and it was largely due to the Catholic charities mm-hmm. facilitating that. Mm-hmm. But then she was the one who really said. After hey, Katrina, after Katrina, she she started uh, coastal uh, coastal communities, yeah, which is was bringing the Laotian, Cambodian, Vietnamese fishermen together because a lot of them English obviously is not their first language, or just facilitating um, uh, th- th- them as a, co- a cooperative. Well, I was involved a lot in the post-Katrina planning. Again, that's mm-hmm. my, my stock and trade is doing that kind of community outreach and PR and stuff. And um, I really believe the post-Katrina planning meetings, that was the first time that the Vietnamese community really came to the mm-hmm. fore mm-hmm. and became recognized as, again, a community force. Right. Um, you, you know, they, there's the a, awareness there's of them and what they were doing became apparent. Mm-hmm. The historical roots to that, you know, they're, they're not in their nature aggressive in that in that in, in this community sense. You know, they're they're rather restrained, but they learned in '75 that you can't wait for the government to take care of you. Mm-hmm. So they, their community, the Versailles community, was one of the first communities to come back, largely because they just shifted into high gear. Yes, I um, heard, yes, yeah. yeah. Through the churches, there's that one church. Yeah, the, the, uh, uh, our, our, our Mary Queen. Mary Queen of Vietnam. Yes. Yeah, those are the ones um, that were coming to our meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the, the pastor, whose name I don't remember. Oh, yeah, Father... Um, so I'm terrible with names. Yeah. And then our third panelist on that uh, panel is a friend of mine, Andrew Lam, who is a Vietnam another Vietnamese immigrant mm-hmm. who, who doesn't who, who's a big foodie and a terrific cook. Every time he comes to New Orleans, he cooks. We go to Hong Kong Market and he cooks for me. He's mm. really amazing. But he's a journalist well, who was a, who was a boat person <laughs> after the war. Mm-hmm. And so he brings to the table a kind of different narrative, which is about how he acculturated himself through food, how mm-hmm. after the disaster of the loss of the war and being being a boat person, he came to America and through food found his way into the American community. How, how did he first 
make that connection? How did that start? Oh, I think that, um, you know, um, we eat every day. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, it's what you do with it. If you have an imagination like his, you, you and make, you and he had to think about how to use the foods that he was mm-hmm. encountering here that were different from what he had been. So that all, already, when you were confronted with the new, mm-hmm. is often a stimulus for improvisation, right? He wrote a book right? called East Meets No, East Eats West, mm-hmm. and uh, writing in two hemispheres. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a terrific writer. He's won the Penn International Award, and um, he's moved back to Saigon now. So he's that's that's one of the way. things that really fascinated me about your program is the combinations of people that you have in this. Because when I first saw your flyer, you know, that mm-hmm. called me uh, mm-hmm. my attention to you, I'm saying improvisation, okay, music and art and so on. And then I'm looking at it and said, whoa, okay, urban planners and... It's the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's the real deal. Let's go into the urban planning because that's kind of my territory a little bit too. Well, um, that's that's a, about what you were saying before about post-Katrina and the the all the... Well, so the premise of that is that... You know, after Katrina, the urbanists all thought that a top-down approach was going to Tell fix me New about Orleans. It. Yeah, I was right and, in the middle of all that. And uh, in fact, what is generally agreed is that it was grassroots. It was bottom-up. It was neighborhood by neighborhood. It wasn't absolutely. And um, I had a I had a, a interesting experience uh, when I went to hear. Um, when I, when I went to hear Walter Isaacson talk about his uh, internet book, which basically argued that the internet was not a top-down invention, it wasn't the military who invented it, it was a bunch of guys in garages who, you know, grassroots. And uh, so I listened to that, and I grabbed the microphone when he was done, and I said, Walter, that's a really interesting argument from someone who led the charge of the top-down approach to fixing New Orleans. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess he forgave me. Um, he, said, I, he, I, said, he said, you know, I hadn't put that together, and I think that's a very interesting... Well, well let me share mm-hmm. a perspective on, uh, on that, too, because um, there were two things. First of all, before the whole planning process started, mm-hmm. when there was just that little committee of the mayors... Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved the one in writing. In Dallas, huh? The one that Canizaro did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I, I for freaky reasons, got involved in that, and mm-hmm. I was handling PR along with a couple other people, and um, involved in in bringing people to the meetings. And um, at the very beginning, I wrote a grant to Rockefeller that was the mm-hmm. source of the mm-hmm. support that they mm-hmm. brought to us for the. Okay. It, it went. It got very politically complicated. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go into that, but. One of the things that um, I called for in my plan was to have neighborhood-based kind of satellite mm-hmm. meetings mm-hmm. everywhere. And what I found, it, and that was done, mm-hmm. that was realized. Stephen was involved in mm-hmm. that, but um, it was a plan that was put was out. Yeah, Bigler. It was put out before he got involved. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing that was so fabulous about that that before the storm there was a tendency in all our community organiza- organizing in the city to organize 
in opposition to things. Mm-hmm. Don't tear this building down. Mm-hmm. Don't tear mm-hmm. this tree down. Mm-hmm. Don't put, you know, a, a roadway here. A road. In that process, people learned that they could think proactively mm-hmm. about how to shape their community the mm-hmm. way they wanted. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was so fast that you figured out that people in the neighborhood knew best Mm-hmm. What needed to happen in their neighborhood? Mm-hmm. Their in their in their essential experience and intelligence about their lives and their home mm-hmm. um, ruled. So one of the biggest recommendations that actually came out of that whole thing, because not a lot of really innovative recommendations, mm-hmm. truthfully, did come out of it. But one of them was to take down I-10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That came from I was at the meeting where that came up in Treme where mm-hmm. people from the neighborhood said, take that thing down. Will it happen in our lifetime? I don't know. But it was not the urbanists. Mm-hmm. The urbanists kind of took over mm-hmm. that notion going mm-hmm. forward. What was his name, that Cuban guy? That was mm-hmm. – Yeah. The Cuban I'm terrible guy. with names. Yeah. I can't, I'm not going to remember his name right now. But, um, the new urbanists. But that came from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I really think that that changed – to a great extent, that and, of course, the people in the Lakeview area who were just adamant about coming back when they were told they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, the, unfortunately, there was a terrible interpretation of the green dots, and that's for another time. We don't have to get into that now, but they, that was misinterpreted. Hmm. The green dots was all about exactly what we're doing now, building green into our neighborhoods to absorb like water. The, the, mm. the, that's what it was really all the about. The Dutch Dialogues. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily Dutch. Well, no, what I mean <laughs> is that it's what the Dutch dialogues have been arguing. Yeah. You know, what's come out of the Dutch we'll dialogues. We'll talk offline about okay. how much the Dutch were really involved in all this and, and mm-hmm. how that came about. But um, it was people uh, who really said, let's bring our neighborhoods back and, mm-hmm. and who really shaped the vision of it. So where improv lives, urban planning and improvisation. So uh, – Stephen Bingler, Sue So we'll Sue explore Mobley. the post-Katrina story, and then Sue Mobley and Brian Lee, who were involved in the in the paper monuments project. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. And then and that, that too was a community bottom-up mm-hmm. grassroots exactly. thing. You and know, then what Roberta you Gratz. Excuse, and then Roberta Gratz, who wrote the great book. Uh, uh, we're um, still here, you <laughs> bastards! How the people of New Orleans. We're still here. You can't say it on the air, <laughs> how the people of New Orleans rebuilt their city. Um, all right. So drum improvisation uh, from 3.30 to 5. And you have Stanton Moore. You have Shannon Powell. And I'm so sorry Herlin Raleigh couldn't make it. But uh, Johnny Vodakovich is yeah. one of my favorite drummers in the city. So oh, yeah. th- that's a great bunch of guys. We have and, s- um, such an embarrassment of riches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gonna, all, that's going to be fabulous. Instruments I will make it for that. Great. Even if I miss Great. all the talk, I will make it and for And we really hope uh, that panel, that session will be very interactive as far as dem- de- demonstrative of the improv that takes place. So we'll, we'll have, you know, two drum kits set up on stage and the drummers can sort of demonstrate mm-hmm. uh, live. I, I heard a great story recently about Johnny Vodakovich that I think sums up my understanding of improv. Um, because I think improv is always not only a pushback against rationality, but there's always a, a, a battle going on in improv between structure and non-structure. 
Mm-hmm. And so here's the story. So uh, some young drummer goes to Johnny for a for a, a lesson, and he and he plays the drums. He you know shows his stuff, and Johnny says, "You are a very proficient drummer. My job is going to be to slop you up." Mm-hmm. And I just love that, you know, because what is the virtue of slop? Well, it's persuasive. It, it mm-hmm. says, I'm authentic. I'm real. I'm, I'm, you know, in, in touch with my heart. Well, and, and loosening up. Loosening and, and up loose, the whole yeah, dialogue yeah. of the. So of the, the authentic, authenticity of looseness. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we, we, we're all political here and we can't not mention that there's a, a very loose cannon these days in the White House, who's we could call our improviser in chief. I know. I mean, and, now, I, I, before he, I even read in your uh, uh, comments uh, how you got to that, and I was thinking the same thing. Okay, if if we want to deal with somebody who operates on strictly on intuition, which mm-hmm. taken to an extreme can be um, psychotic. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I so, so for me, more, he's like so a bizarro. Through the looking glass version of everything I've written about, but it's amazing how point by point he follows the patterns I see, but in this dark, destructive way. So I call it, I call my book a taste for chaos, saying that improvisers have a taste. They want, they want us to taste chaos. They want, they, the, the, you know, the order of our culture can get stagnant. If it's only order, and every once in a while it needs a taste of chaos to bring it back to life. And I, but on the other hand, it can be this just utterly destructive uh, force. And unfortunately, I really think that a lot of people who forgive all of the terrible things he does Mm -hmm. and says and thinks are looking for that loosening up that. Mm -hmm. Going against, so I, I listened, you know, I'm, I'm totally addicted to all of the cable shows because this is so much drama and so much history and so much incredible journalism and incredible lessons to be learned from the law people who are talking. I mean, it's just, (laughs) it's remarkable. Somebody was saying they watch TV series and I say, I don't watch any of those series. They don't hold a candle (laughs) to what's going on at the national level right now. So yeah, I I listen to a lot of that. And, um, and I I think about um, how people voted for him to disrupt. Mm -hmm. They wanted the order that we had been living with disrupted. And quite frankly, the Democrats weren't doing such a hot job mm-hmm. any more so than the Republicans. And I'm very much a Democrat, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who've been left behind mm-hmm. by them as well as by the Republicans. But I, I think it opened – I want to go back to what Randy was saying. I mean, there's such a thing as good improvisers and bad improvisers. And, you know, when you see Bill Clinton or uh, or Obama or some polished person who has knowledge to back up they're, what they're saying, they can improv like a great jazz. They could have improved a lot more, quite frankly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's but, my but feeling. I also think that I don't um, think they improved that much. They, they, they. Um, uh, to me, there was uh, not so much Obama, but Clinton. That was just a little bit too much Republican light mm-hmm, themes mm-hmm. in what he did. Sure, so, but I mean, I think if anything, Trump has opened, uh, cracked open the idea that this. It, uh, the United States is almost ungovernable. 
governable at this point. Like that's something we all have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And then what? Yeah, I, I mean, don't know how we come back from this. It's ungovernable when you really break How we break come it back down. from this tribalism. Yep. Well, one thing that if you studied uh, some history in mm-hmm. the course of your work in literature, and I'm sure you did through all of your work, mm-hmm. um, there's, no, there's no such thing as a straight line in history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't keep going that way mm-hmm. or that way. It varies. So I'm not going to say the pendulum is going to swing and and I I do think that this is some of this is permanently damaging. There's no doubt about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. But it's also a reflection of this era that we live in, which between the technology the roots, the roots and the of way- these problems go way back. You know, yeah. the, the educational system that we not paid into for so long. Absolutely. You know, you don't you don't get um, people falling for this if they've. Well, you see, I, I, I think that's true of a lot of them, mm-hmm. but I also th- – and I, f- I feel badly about them because I think they've been duped. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk a lot about the in- incredible um, oh, disillusioning that, that there have to be people out there who feel very taken finally mm-hmm. and understand that they've been taken. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand um, – We need more of them. I think that there there were some folks who really just plain cold wanted to disrupt the norm. Right, right. So when the when the pundits keep saying, "Well, that's not normal," or mm. "That that's that's not the, the way things should work," and, and so I'm saying, "You're not you're not making any headway whatsoever with people mm. who think that mm. the normal was not doing anything for them." But you know, um, the times are dark. But our last panel. As you were saying earlier, um, Jules Pfeiffer's interview by Michael Tisserand. So I was just coming to that. Yeah. Is is um, you were saying earlier that his the 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 legendary Jules Pfeiffer, the great satiric cartoonist at the Village Voice, and uh, he had an, an amazing career. Now at ninety, um, his theme is that things are bad, but you can always dance. Mm-hmm. You said it better. What, what was is well, the, 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 I, I, I can't paraphrase mm-hmm. myself usually, but I, <laughs> it's just that the, the dancers are uh, dancing and talking about the woes mm-hmm. of their time. The mm-hmm. 60s were pretty – 50s and 60s mm-hmm. were pretty rugged too in different ways. Um, but in the end, they're always looking for the optimistic way of getting out of it. Mm-hmm. But um, so you've got Jules Pfeiffer. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. And and Walt Handelsman, who's one of my favorites, mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And I love he's local introducing cartoons. that the evening. Right. And this this is taking place at Freeman Auditorium at Tulane mm-hmm. in the Newman and Newcomb Quad. So and again, that there's parking. At seven o'clock. There's, a, uh, there's an issue part with parking yeah. there, but there is a big parking lot right near that. I've gotten used to using when I go to sports medicine to get various parts right. of the body. Right, there's fixed. that high rise. <laughs> That's right. Right. Yeah, across from the gym. Now on Sunday, let's see. Wait, did I miss anything? No, Sunday, you've brought the kids in. Yeah, we we have a, a new cultural uh, gift to New Orleans, the Louisiana Children's Museum, mm-hmm. and we thought. You know, we did these workshops last year. This is our second year. And uh, they were all for adults. And we thought, 
you know, kids are the ones who are really good at improv. They're the, they're the really creative ones. Uh, Picasso says that uh, it took me four years to learn to paint like Rubens, but a lifetime to paint like a child. Um, so, so we were going to have three, uh, workshops, uh, interactive workshops, one on improvising the food we eat. And there, Ron Brody of Edible Schoolyard will be teaching kids how to make ice cream. With odd ingredients, I think, right? Well, he's actually um, uh-huh. using uh, ingredients from the garden. Mm. So this is going to mm-hmm. be outside. In the, they have an outdoor kitchen. The, the garden, the garden in the park that uh, where they do the at the Louisiana Museum at the Children's, Children's Museum. Museum. Oh, at the museum. Yeah, itself. outside. Okay. You're mm-hmm. speaking of something else that just opened at the uh, yeah. at City Park. Yeah. yeah. And Ron also runs. He started something called the Seventh Ward Ice Cream Speakeasy. So if you're not familiar with that on Facebook, he will post occasionally that he has pints for sale in different flavors mm, and mm. usually sells out within. He's not the same guy who's been doing it sometimes at the um, at the farmer's markets, is he? Mm, I don't But I only go to the one uptown. He, he I don't know. Maybe. I know for, for a while he was selling out of a couple of bars uh, in the neighborhood, too, mm. during in the summer. Mm-hmm. When it was really hot, he would um, set up. But so he's doing that first workshop, um, which is great. Uh, I love that you're introducing um, youth to urban design. What a great thing. Well, and, you know, that's it was all very um, serendipitous because the museum has a, an installation, a permanent installation called Make Your Mark. And it is about your uh, – uh, opening kids to the experience of creating their own environment. So there's um, there's a river uh, installation, there's blocks, there's numerous things for the kids sort of get engaged into designing the type of neighborhood that they want to live in. And that's a mm. permanent part of the museum, so it just mm. kind of worked out. We had the idea before we even knew that was there, mm-hmm. and it just worked out perfectly. And then the third me. workshop is jazz, traditional jazz, led by the musicians of Preservation <laughs> Hall. So um, here's an opportunity to, for your child to rub elbows with some of the greats of jazz history. And then you have and um, then and then after that Stanton Orr's group just with to, just Tarkinowski, who I, I go, he's my go-to guy all yeah. the time, and Singleton. These are legendary. The Stan Moore Trio. Yeah, that's playing at three. Yep, at at three p.m. on Sunday at Louisiana Children's Museum. Guys, this is uh, is really terrific. I love it. Um, I, I, uh, you guys out in the audience, if you don't um, pick up on some of this, you're crazy, (laughs) (laughs) or you're, you know. Trying to let the ego control you too much. (laughs) You just have to, you have to really get out there and enjoy some of this. And I think that, um, the place to go to learn more is Improv Conference New Orleans, uh, NOLA, Improv Conference NOLA, one word, dot com. Uh, you'll also find us on Facebook at, uh, Gianna? Uh, Improv Conference New Orleans. New Orleans. A Festival Festival of of Ideas. And we'd love to see you out there. Um, there's um, the Jazz Museum, of course, on the third floor is just a terrific room. There's an overflow room in case we 
we max out. But um, so there's room for everybody. Um, get there early though if you want a good seat. And the um, the events on Friday and Saturday night or $15, but there are scholarships available if you're interested and can't afford it. Um, how do they go about that? Well, if they go on the website, there's mm-hmm. um, it, we have a contact us button, and it's info at improvconferencenola.com, and they can simply send an email, um, and we'll go from there. That's great. That's wonderful um, that you're doing that. Um, I mean, we're Saturday really trying to keep the entire we'll be- thing free. Saturday night, because Jules Pfeiffer makes 90 this year, uh, we will be toasting him. So if you want a taste of champagne, which Cedric Martin of of, uh, wines, of, of uh, Martin's Wine Martin's, Cellar uh, has donated, we will be toasting Mr. Pfeiffer uh, in his 90th year. And, you know, I encourage, uh, uh, again, um, listeners to... Um, go online and, and take a look at some of Jules Pfeiffer's um, cartoons. Um, they will um, definitely inspire you. You'll see a bunch on our Facebook page. And he's actually um, he's writing for an online magazine called Tablet. So he he actually has published in the last year several new pieces, one of which touches upon Trump, um, and he uses the dancer again uh, in a lot in a few other cartoons. So this is all new work in the last last year that he's published. What do you hope um, the outcome of this conference will be in a general public sense, but also on an individual basis? I mean, you're doing this for a reason. This isn't just to celebrate and have you fun. You know, my, my book, I'm very proud of my book, but it's an academic book. It's not for everyone. Um, but I feel the ideas in it that the the critical approach to improv that I bring um, is something that a general audience needs to hear. That's really what what it's about for me. So bringing these ideas to a New Orleans audience uh, is so thrilling to me. You know, this was kind of my closet project for years. You know, when I was running Roos Chris, I was running home and reading Chaos Science um, because it was – I left it in the closet because it was too, a little too complicated um, and a little too literary. But Trump, at one fell swoop when he came down to that escalator, he he convinced me that you know I really am onto something here, and we we really need you know as as much as improvisation has has contributed to innovation in the history of our culture. Uh, there's a danger there too. Uh, and a lot of the great improvisers, a lot of the great improvisations uh, are really critical studies of that problem. Um, Paradise Lost is about the problem of who's whispering sweet nothings in your ear, who's inspiring you. Watch out. And I think that we're definitely um, in an era where um, the patterns of communication are changing so dramatically mm-hmm. Uh, and young people are taking in and putting out information in ways very different from mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. my generation mm-hmm. anyway. I'm not, mm-hmm. You guys aren't quite there yet. but um, I'm close. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for <to> uh, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I really love the idea of connecting the dots as far as these, ide- these ideas in a setting where people are actually thinking – 
and sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we call it a festival of ideas, and yes, it's it's it is a conference, but it's not an academic conference. It's mm-hmm. really for anyone who wants to wants to use their brain and celebrate the idea that they can actually discuss interesting. Not only that, but I'll I'll guarantee you that out of this meeting, the people who come to it are there. There's going to be some new found Mm -hmm. relationships, Mm -hmm. friendships, uh, associations Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. could be life changing. Mm -hmm. Literally, when you bring people together in a setting like this to look at 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 how we deal with life creatively, um, all bets are off. You, know, you don't you don't know what's going to come out of it. So of course, it, 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 it could be just need, a wonderful experience for people who are coming there. You know, as you say, not necessarily with any great big credentials or academics, but just curious. Mm-hmm. Curious. All you need to bring with you for this mm-hmm. conference is curiosity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yep. an open mind. Yep. Which Definitely is, I guess, the same mind. thing. I um, have enjoyed this thoroughly, and I, I'm telling you, I definitely plan to be there. Of course, I have to admit, I'm sort of such a drumming, drumming, and drummer enthusiast that I will for sure make it for 3:30 for that um, on Saturday for the uh, drummers, Great. and um, I'm going to try to make a lot of it too. So, okay. and thank you both for thank what you. you're doing. Keep it up. Do it next year again, and. Um, I think it's, uh, you couldn't pick a better place to be doing it. Are you going to be shooting some of it? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, Friday night will be streamed online uh, on oh, Facebook. Okay. Yes. Uh, Saturday will be streamed. We're having a little bit of a problem Saturday night. It'll still be on Facebook. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be available. Visually, uh, not just audio, visual. Too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's fun. And last year's are available on our site. Improv. Set aside Nola. again? ImprovConferenceNola.com. ImprovConferenceNola.com. ImprovConferenceNola.com, y'all. Be there or be square. square. (laughs) (laughs) This is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and Jazz has got my signal on there and telling me it is time for us to wrap up. And uh, again, I loved having. Both Mrs. Shashari, not Shashare, and Randy Fertel. Thank you. Thank you.